listening to Law and Gospel on this Bible Study Wednesday, February the 27th in the year of our Lord, 2019. Uh, We're looking forward today, this evening, to be preaching to two congregations, and we're going to be doing the Transfiguration Day uh, in the preaching. But right now, what is this Bible study we're talking about We've got a number of groups that are meeting together, even in a church, at 9.30 in the morning on Wednesdays to listen to a Bible study, and normally I'm trying to do it on one of the readings that we have for the following Sunday, which is Transfiguration. And so this week, what's kind of interesting is that all four readings, and that is the Psalms, the Old Testament, the Epistle, and the gospel all mention Moses. And so if those who are gathered together, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to go through Hebrews chapter 3 in a Bible study. That'll last till 10 o'clock, at which time those who are gathered together can begin to discuss it. In fact, I was told last week that one of the churches that is meeting at 9.30, they not only kept going after 10.30, the Bible study went another two hours. So this is a great opportunity, and so we certainly appreciate those who are listening. So without further ado, let's go to the book of Hebrews, and no, it's not in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. We're not exactly sure who the author is. There are a number of thinkings about that, but it doesn't matter. It's part of the Bible. And the editors at the top of chapter 3 put this down. Jesus greater than Moses. So let's kind of take a look at this. First one, therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to those who have a heavenly calling. You know, a lot of times we think about, when am I going to get into the kingdom of heaven? And we think about judgment day. Well, there's no doubt that that can occur on Judgment Day. But there are actually three kingdom of heavens that the Bible talks about. The first one is, of course, becoming a member of the Holy Christian Church by baptism or through faith in hearing the word of the gospel. The second one is called the interim. When you die, your spirit goes to heaven, and there's an interim time between your death and judgment day where you will be in heaven with Jesus in the spirit. And then the final kingdom of heaven is going to occur on the day of judgment when your bodies will rejoin with your spirit. So that's your heavenly calling. Christians, therefore, who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that their sins have been forgiven by his death and resurrection, They consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, normally we use the word apostle to refer to human beings 
or the high priest. Well, there were priests at the time of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. But Jesus is the high priest. That is, no one's higher than Jesus. The task of the priest in the Old Testament was to prepare the sacrifices as well as pray for the people. Jesus as priest becomes also the victim of the sacrifices. And that's why we're really looking forward to the following weeks coming up of Lent as we explain more fully what this all means. So he's the high priest of our confession. Now, the word confession here simply is referring to what we believe and confess. I had mentioned some time ago that God gives us glory. He regards us as glorious when we simply confess the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed because we are throwing into the face of Satan the true understanding of the Holy Trinity and particularly the work of Jesus Christ. Going on, Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, the term house doesn't necessarily mean a building. It's really referring to the Holy Christian Church. Remember, Jesus begins his ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand. When it says he was faithful, what does that mean? Yesterday, we preached at the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod headquarters and made the point that the term faith really means trust in a promise. Remember, Jesus read the Old Testament, and who knows how much other information he received from the Father in his state where he had become incarnate. He was faithful to him who appointed him. That meant he was designated, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So Moses had been appointed by God. Remember the burning bush? And Moses says, wait a minute, wait a minute, Lord. I I am not able to speak to Pharaoh. I, I can't release your people from Egypt, from their bondage. And God just simply said, Moses, I'm going to be with you. You see, when God is with you, then any promise he makes will definitely come true. Now, it doesn't mean that when God is with you, and unfortunately there are some religions that teach this, that therefore anything that you desire will come true. No. But the promises of God will come true. And look at the many, many promises as found in the Scripture concerning you, the believer, that God will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll never send you a temptation greater than you can endure as you turn to him for help. He will work all things out to your good. Many, many promises. Jesus was faithful 
in the same way that Moses was faithful in proclaiming the word of God. But then, verse 3, Hebrews 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory, now listen to this, as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Have you ever bought a new house? And you go to it, and boy, does it ever look beautiful. And so, yes, that's a house that I would like to build or to buy. And then you find out who the builder was. Uh, There are some people who do make beautiful houses, and to get one of those, that's really wonderful. In other words, the builder gets more glory than the building itself. Um, The writer to the Hebrews explains this. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And there was nothing made that was not made by the Word. Well, who's this Word? Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus is the one who has created all things. In fact, he's found in the third verse of the Bible. And God said, let there be light. That's Jesus speaking the word of God in creating light. Now, verse 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you take a look at the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there are a number of prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. You've got Abraham chosen by God and the chosen people who therefore had the task of sharing that good news with many others. The chosen people were not chosen to be the only ones who are saved. They were chosen through whom the salvation would come. Concordia Publishing House has a beautiful chart that at the top has Adam and at the bottom has Jesus. And then there's a genealogical chart where you can follow all the way down the line that goes directly to Jesus. And of course, he was from the house of Judah. So Moses was faithful in all of God's house to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So what's the difference between a servant and a son? Simply read the Athanasian Creed. Because in the Athanasian Creed, guess what we discover? That there are three persons, all equal, all having the same attributes, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're omniscient, that means they know everything. They're omnipotent, that means they're all-powerful. And they're omnipresent, which means they're everywhere, all three of them. And yet, 
one God. You see, the Bible really doesn't make any sense. Not from a reasonable point of view. But it certainly makes sense from a logical point of view. That's why we believe in the Trinity, because the logic of the Bible moves us to confess three persons, one God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Well, what's the difference between Jesus and us? Because we're re referred to as sons of God also. Well, the distinction is the difference between begotten and adopted. Christians are adopted by God. Why are they adopted by God? We have no idea why I was adopted. I certainly didn't meet any qualification where God would look at me and say, wow, that is a wonderful person. Let's adopt him into our family. If that were true, Saul, who was killing Christians, would never have been adopted and made Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. So we're adopted, and the verse goes on. I'm reading from verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, what does that mean? What's confidence? Confidence is when you're a child and your parents tell you, we're going to be going to McDonald's on Saturday morning. I don't ever remember hearing something like that from my parents and asking them, well, give me evidence that you're going to keep your promise. Or how do I know that's really what we're going to be doing? You just believe it. You have confidence because you know that that is what your parents are saying. Uh, the word confidence is actually coming from the Latin con with and fideo, faith. So confidence means you have the faith trusting in the promises of God. And therefore, you're not boasting about your works as though your works are going to save you. You're boasting in your hope. And what's the hope? The hope is based on the promises of God, that he is going to be taking care of you, saving you, bringing you to heaven, working all things out in your life. There isn't a thing that goes on in your life that God is not in control. Therefore, going on with verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, now I find that interesting because what we're going to be reading is from the Old Testament, what the Holy Spirit is saying in its Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, this is really hard to understand. The Israelites, first of all, are fleeing from the Egyptians. And then they see the Egyptians following them, and they get all worried. So God puts a pillar of fire during 
the night and a cloud during the day to separate them from the Egyptians. But then they're still stuck because there's the Red Sea. So what God does, he opens up the Red Sea and they all cross over. Then when they get to the other side, they see the Egyptians are coming through the Red Sea to get to them. And they get all worried again until the waters come down and crush them. And look how many times the rebellion of the people show themselves. They don't have enough water, so they get angry at God. They don't have enough bread until they get that manna. They're angry with God. They don't have enough meat, and God sends them birds. And then they get to the promised land. They could have gone in within two years of leaving Egypt, and they hear about all these giants, and we're not going to be able to control them. And they once more lose their confidence in God. So God has them go through the wilderness another 38 years until those who had lost their confidence no longer are able to go into the promised land. God is provoked with that generation. And what he's saying to you is when you hear the word of God, do not harden your hearts as did many in Israel during the rebellion. Remember, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. It was obviously God was there. There was thunderings and lightnings, and they even told Moses, don't let God come down, you know, keep him up there, keep us separate. But Moses took so long, they made a golden calf. I just don't understand. If I had had these miraculous things happening in my life, would I ever doubt God? Well, unfortunately, I would, because I do, because something more miraculous happened in my life than happened to the people, because I was baptized with the Pentecost baptism, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the assurance that not only my sins were forgiven, but my body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit, and yet I still sin. My old Adam Yes, he may be drowned in the waters of baptism. He's a pretty good swimmer. And therefore, many times I do things out of self-interest. Even when I'm doing a good work. In fact, we were looking at the Heidelberg Disputation at a congregation recently. And that's one of the points that Luther makes. That even the good works we do through the Holy Spirit do not become meritorious for us getting into heaven. Because it is impossible to do a fruit of the Holy Spirit until you are totally saved. Proper good works come after salvation, being adopted by God. Therefore, it's very clear they can't possibly lead me to salvation. So, the writer continues, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In the uh, coffee hour, we had the president of the Missouri District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, encouraging us to uh, attend a meeting where it was going to be talking about how to raise children properly. I don't ever remember 
as long as I can remember, ever having a meal at my house with my parents where we didn't begin with the Lord's Prayer or some other prayer for having the meal, even if it was just, thank you, Jesus, for this food. And then every evening uh, during the supper hour as we ate together, we would have a Bible study read, a Bible story, and my dad would ask us questions. So there is a way in which, as it says here, exhorting one another every day that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm excuse me, I had to sneeze, firm to the end. And the end, of course, is judgment day. And God keeps us firm. And then he quotes again a passage from the Old Testament. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Going on with verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? See, this is what's so amazing. Why would they rebel after seeing all these tremendous miracles? Well, it's the same reason that you and I as Christians often rebel. It's called sin, even though we have confidence in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We still rebel. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Now, if you just had that verse, you may get the idea that people were not allowed into the promised land because of their bad works. They were sinning. And so you can understand when people read the Bible out of context they get the impression, well, if bad works doesn't save you, good works will. And there are so many people who think, yeah, Jesus did his part, but I have to do my part in becoming worthy in order for God to save me. Well, that's not what this says. Look at verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient with a question mark. So it's, it sounds again that it's because of their sinful works that they weren't able to go into the promised land. Well, if that were true, then my sinful works would mean I wouldn't be going into the promised land of an eternity in heaven. So what's going on here? Scripture interprets Scripture does God think that my evil works and your evil works will keep us from getting into heaven? If that were the case, then we would be saved by our works. It sounds like they were not going into the promised land because of their disobedience, that they had sinned until we get to verse 19. And that's the last verse in Hebrews 3. So we see that they were unable to enter because of disobedience? No. 
The verse reads this way. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You see, the sins that they had were not just regular sins that you and I may have as Christians after which we repent of them. In other words, we're contrite over them and look to Jesus for salvation. These sins of unbelief have no repentance to them. And so Hebrews really goes into the two kinds of covenants, the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant. And one of the points it makes is the Old Testament covenant failed not because of disobedience, but because of the kind of disobedience that comes from unbelief. Therefore, how is a person saved? Through faith and faith alone. So that's Hebrews chapter 3. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to email me, and we'll try and answer them um, during our broadcasts. Uh, Tomorrow, we had a couple of Fridays ago a question about a group that gives the impression they're speaking for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but they were pro-abortion. And so we're going to look at that in greater detail to help you understand to be more critical. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.